A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? China's property market accounts for somewhere between 20% and 29% of the whole country's GDP. The never-ending rise of residential blocks were how ordinary people like my family could see and touch the miraculous economic growth that the country was going through. But in recent months, the property market hasn't been so hot. In fact, it's contracted 7% compared to this time last year. And that's a big drag on the GDP as a whole, which is now looking more like 3% growth this year, if that. So what's going on? What is causing the slump in the housing market? I'm joined today by George Magnus, who's an economist and author of Red Flags, a book which looks at all the underlying economic problems in Xi Jinping's economy, together with Lulu Chen, who is a Bloomberg journalist looking at real estate in Asia. So, George and Lulu, thank you so much for joining me. Lulu, let's start with your story. Recently, you reported on a protest by homeowners across 80 cities in China, in which they simply refused to pay their mortgages. Tell us about it. Yeah. So I think a little bit of context here for audiences who are not in China, this refusal to pay mortgages is quite different from the subprime mortgage crisis that we saw in the U.S. a few years ago. It's not so much an issue of financial stress on these homeowners' part. It's more because a lot of these construction projects, actually, as of today, there's more than 300 of these projects. They simply haven't been, been completed. And so as a homeowner, you're sitting here and you're paying mortgages for uh, projects that have not been built, that have not been completed, and you don't know when the developers are going to ever start construction again. And so that's really what started this movement. It started in the uh, home base for China's porcelain factory, and it just snowballed from there after other homeowners saw that they actually grabbed attention and they actually managed to get some, some reaction from the government after months and years of petitions. Mm, yeah, and, and the situation in China is that more than 90% of properties in 2021 were pre-sales. So because you've got all these new builds coming up, people are actually selling them and buying them before they're actually built. But as you say, a lot of them are not being completed. Actually, I've got a stat here that says between 2013 and 2020, only 60% percent of these pre-sold homes were completed. So George, it's not a happy scene. But before we delve further in, can you give listeners an idea of just how important the real estate industry is to the Chinese economy? Yes, of course. I, mean, I think many people will be familiar with a paper that was written by Ken Rogoff and a colleague probably about, I don't know, a year, maybe 15, 18 months ago now. And this kind of now infamous number of 29% of GDP is being kind of quoted all over the place. So their estimate basically is not just about housing construction, but also housing services like renting, brokering, and so on and so forth, but also the kind of consumer cyclicals that go into new apartments like white goods and so on, and also the commodities that enter into the construction. 
of uh, apartments. So their estimate was that that on a kind of an annual kind of flow basis, the real estate sector accounts for about 29% of GDP. Some people have kind of queried whether that's a little bit too high. But even the kind of skeptics think that, you know, we're still talking about a sector that's contributing between a fifth and 22, 23% of GDP. So it's a really, really big part of the Chinese economy. And whenever people talk about China's overinvestment or the fact that, you know, it's too investment heavy and not enough kind of consumption in, in the structure of the economy, that investment is first and foremost, really, about construction in housing and to some degree, commercial buildings and infrastructure, but a lot of it is housing. Mm. And Lulu, what's interesting about this mortgage buyers protest is that the government's response since has been not what you might expect. Can you tell us about what they have done in response? I should say we're recording this on the 19th of July. So the response so far. Right. So, so as of this week, the latest reporting that we have is that the banking regulators have told banks, the lenders, to start issuing credit to distressed developers, the ones that qualify so they can complete these projects. Also, as of yesterday, we also reported that they're thinking of giving a so-called mortgage holiday to these home buyers, saying that if their homes have not been completed, then these buyers can extend their payments for a period of time without affecting their credit scoring. So the reaction so far has been, I think this has been one of the most successful petitions, if you if you will, in recent years where you've actually seen these people voice their demand and actually gotten some kind of response that wasn't just a straight down crackdown from the regulators. And some say this is because that these petitioners they do represent China's middle class to some extent. And it's not just in the previous years, like villagers whose lands got taken Mm. away, that kind of protest. So the middle class has more, I would say, more influence and more voice when it comes to these matters. And maybe that's why we're seeing this reaction. So George, tell us then, what is the problem? Why are these developers so under cosh at the moment? Well, of course, the the denouement in the real estate sector has been going on pretty much since last year, right? So when the so-called red lines were introduced, which were regulations the government introduced in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, that basically imposed constraints on the ability of China's property development companies to borrow, and they regulated their balance sheet leverage and so on and so forth. Arguably, I mean, this might have happened anyway, but arguably these restrictions were the trigger that basically catapulted, you know, the crisis in Evergrande, which is the the world's biggest property developer borrower, not quite the biggest property developer in China, but certainly the second biggest one. But also there are lots of other developers that have been found out, so to speak, in terms of having overreached. So there have been about 18 defaults in China's property development sector on uh, you know tens of billions of dollars of mostly foreign bonds foreign currency bonds but this is just the kind of tip of the iceberg really because the the property sector itself is now obviously rolling over um i mean as uh, lulu said you know sort of these restrictions affecting homeowners have been very very quickly introduced 
or the relaxation of restrictions and increased borrowing to developers. I mean, these are essential things that have to be done in order to stop the contagion because the government's really on a kind of a no-win situation here. If they if they come to the relief of homeowners who rightly are kind of hacked off by paying mortgages on properties that are not being built anymore because of developer problems, and they begin to pay mortgage debt from the initial deposit they make on an unfinished building. I mean, that's the pre-sale model in China's housing market. Obviously, they're very unhappy about that. And if the government kind of goes overboard in helping these people, then it's surely kind of a green light for lots of other people to say, well, why not? You know, we'll we'll stop paying our mortgages too, you know, if we're having problems getting closure on our own properties. But on the other hand, if they don't really come to the relief of homeowners, then the whole pre-sale model, which, as you said in your introduction, accounted for about 90% of sales in 2021, is shot. And, you know, that could send a new, very sharp deflationary shockwave into the property market in which you see demand weaken because nobody's going to buy from developers anymore. So, or not certainly from bankrupt developers. So demand for property will weaken, prices will come down, that'll weaken demand and so on and so forth. So it's a hiding to nothing really for the regulatory authorities and for the government. Almost whatever they do, they're going to be, you know, potential instability. And it's a question of how they're going to be able to manage that. George, in my understanding, China's property market has boomed incredibly since housing reform in the 90s, before which, you know, people like my parents were being allocated flats to live in by the government or by their employers, rather than buying their own personal place. So the last two decades, there's been a massive boom. And am I right in thinking that a lot of these developers funded that through high investment, but investment that was basically from borrowed money. And so creating this kind of circle of high sales, high demand, high investment, high borrowing. But the government with those red lines said, that's quite unsustainable and actually could go wrong very quickly, which is, I guess, what we're seeing now, but the government brought forward in a controlled way, except it's not so controlled. I mean, the pre-sale model of housing sales is a bit of a Ponzi scheme. So obviously the developers, you know, they rake in hordes of cash from existing customers for properties that haven't been built yet. And they use that cash to fund construction of homes to new customers if you see what I mean. And so, you know, it it becomes, that's fine. As long as confidence is high, as long as, you know, investors in the developer companies are confident in their debt management, so long as, you know, the economic environment is good. So the thing about real estate is everything is intensely pro-cyclical, right? Everything that's good feeds on itself in the boom and everything that's bad feeds on itself in the downturn. You don't have any of this kind of contracyclical tendencies where there are mm. kind of offsets to to manage the real estate cycle. In this sense, I think it's a bit of a wake-up call because, I mean, China's had kind of property ups and downs before, no question about it, not really in prices, but certainly in transactions volumes and in you know sales and construction and so on. But there's never really been anything quite like this before. And I think that the idea that China might be immune from your bog standard, you know, real estate boom and bust, I think is being kind of blown up, really. Lulu, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, just to add in terms of how we got here. So 
Evergrande was really, you know, the first developer that started showing signs of trouble. And the size and scope that we use for Evergrande is this is the world's most indebted developer. They were sitting on 300 billion yuan of liabilities. And with the three red lines what that was originally aimed at capping their credit, I guess the central bank, when the initiatives first came down, it really was the broader back setting of this is Xi Jinping. He's taking a personal interest in championing common prosperity in China, and property has been one of the things that has really been driving the wealth gap in China. So in order to, to close that gap and also to end this never-ending property price rising cycle in China, the central banking regulator was asked to actually step in and try to limit the liabilities and credit that these developers had. And fast forward a year now, all of these developers, including ones that used to be considered safe, like Country Garden and even Banky, are now really in trouble and their their bonds are being sold off like crazy in the, in the debt market. So that entire high-yield credit market that used to be predominantly Chinese property developers is essentially gone. There's no debt issuance, so these developers have no channel for money raising at this point, and there are no sales revenue, essentially, because of the COVID lockdowns. And people are asking, like, when is China's property market going to bottom out? I think until we get a lift in the COVID restrictions, and until Xi Jinping stops saying his motto, his famous motto is housing is for living, not for speculation. So if you have this as the overall guidance, I think regulators are going to use that as the as the benchmark. And no matter how many small trickling policies we're seeing from the local government, it's not enough to save a person who's already in the ICU. Yeah. And Lulu, can you talk about COVID? What is the impact of the zero COVID policy on that? Is it just from a consumer demand perspective? Well, it affects mobility, it affects the economy. So if property buyers are seeing the economy starting to slow down or even fall, then you would not want to invest in property given falling prices and a slowing economy. It really, really clouds the future prospects, right? So this loss of confidence and also the fact that people can't go on site and construction is stalling. So it's almost like a chain effect that's causing the slowdown in sales. And people are paying mortgages all the time, of course. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I guess people have struggled in the last few years. You know, there's no furlough scheme or anything like that. So you're, you're eating away at your savings. You're maybe not earning as much as you usually would. Or you might have even lost your job. And that's all going to have an impact on the property market, I guess. Lulu, can I ask about the demand from consumers here? Because George has talked about this kind of virtuous cycle that's caused the boom in the last few decades. The Chinese demand for housing, I feel like there's a cultural thing here because you and I know, you know, if you're a young man looking to have a wife, looking to start a family, you have to have a house. And that's something that a lot of parents are very happy to help with. I think one HSBC study put it in 2017, found that 40% of millennials had help from the bank of mum and dad in China. At the same time, house prices are going up. In cities like Beijing, the house price to income ratio is something like a 14 fold, which is, you know, ridiculous and affordability. So is that what has driven as well the housing boom over the last few decades, this kind of cultural demand for housing, this 
cultural demand to have home ownership? Mm, I think that's multiple factors. First of all, in the past few decades, population was, we still had population moving from rural areas, smaller cities into, into the big cities. So with the backdrop of urbanization, there was real demand. But right now, China's urbanization level is around 65%. And it's very similar to what you have in developed economies like the US or Europe at 75%. And on top of that, our population growth is slowing and probably going to drop in the future. So the demand will come down at some point. And I think maybe even without the three red lines, China's property sector was bound for a turning point and the policies that came in were just expedited everything. Mm. And George, speaking of the three red lines, do you think that was the right way of dealing with what they saw as an overheated market? Or could they have done something else that maybe would have prevented this last 12 months of turmoil? Well, I think, you know, I mean, the problem with just rampant growth in debt or the creation of, you know, infinite amount of liabilities on the balance sheet is that at some point, it has to come to an end. I mean, because it's just no way to run a business, so to speak. And greater kind of regulatory capital and restraints on balance sheet uh, leverage and so on and so forth. I mean, these are all quite common tools which regulatory authorities use to try to contain indebtedness. So, yeah, I mean, the trouble is with these things is, you know, that... And in this sense, you know, the Chinese experience, I don't think, is so different from anybody else's because we went through the same thing in the 2000s in the so-called Western world, you know, leading to the to the GFC, to the great financial crisis, is if you don't regulate well or regulate mm. or supervise properly during the boom years, you end up having to do it at the worst possible moment. And that's exactly what's happened. So, you know, the imposition of these restrictions was made at a time when, you know, the sector was probably ripe for a fall, and it exacerbated it. And even the now, of course, the relaxation of these red line restrictions, or the kind of greater forbearance, which has been introduced into the observance of those restrictions is not really going to save the developers, not really going to save the sector, because, you know, just too many fundamentals. I mean, you talk about the sort of cultural preference for for housing, which is surely, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's uniquely Chinese, because high rates of home ownership are common in uh, the UK, US, and so on and so forth. But I do think that a lot of the fundamentals that kind of lay behind the success of the housing market expansion in China, which are household formation, Mm -hmm. working age population expansion, migration, the demographics were right, lots of investment, etc, etc. I mean, these things basically all in their own little ways, you know, have cumulatively turning. And so they're now contributing to a much more sober outlook. So at some point, harping back to what you and, and Lulu were discussing really about COVID, if at some point the zero COVID policy were to be miraculously abandoned or kind of phased out, then sure, you know, we will see a bounce back in, you know, lots of indicators of the housing market and other services as well. But that We shouldn't be seduced into thinking that that means that, you know, that it's all over. That's just Mm. the natural kind of reaction. There are kind of probably decade-long drags on the property market, which I think are going to take a long time to dissipate. 
Mm. Lulu, one analyst I came across had an interesting take. He said, our base case is that regulators will succeed in containing the crisis by strong-arming state-owned banks into supporting troubled developers. I thought that was really interesting because it betrayed this view that the state will always bail these developers out. Do you think this analyst was right in thinking that? Will the state bail them out again? I mean, we're already seeing signs of it so far in the mortgage protest. Right. I think right now that's the billion dollar question, which is how is the government going to get out of this mess? And I think no matter what the solution is, the banks are going to play a significant role in this because 30 to 40 percent of bank loans are tied to the property market. And then also on top of that, you have... 30 to 40 percent of local government revenue tied to land sales. So it's essentially too big to fail this market. And people are always saying, oh, where, where does the money come from? The banks have money. And there's that expectation for the banks to just keep printing money or keep taking up all this debt and kicking the bucket down the road. I think for the banks right now, there's the estimates in terms of how, how much the bad loans are. So there's a bit of a guessing game. If you look at China's total outstanding mortgages, it's around 38 trillion yuan. That's excluding the gongjijing, like the non-risky mortgage loans. And then ANZ had an estimation saying that they think about 1.5 trillion yuan of mortgages could be affected. So that's about 4%. But if you look a little bit closer, so Bloomberg Intelligence, our own analysis says that of the top 10 banks listed here in Hong Kong, the bigger ones, the impact on them is going to be relatively small and probably only 0.01% of their mortgages are going to become bad debt. But the smaller rural and city commercial banks have taken on more risk and more of these risky mortgages and, and they could be affected a lot more. So the MPL ratio could be a lot higher for the smaller banks. Mm. And George, you, you mentioned foreign creditors as well. Should they be worried that they're not going to be paid back? Because, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the government just says, OK, pay back your Chinese creditors first. Don't worry about the foreign ones. Oh, sure. Last time I checked, I think the... Implied interest rates and a lot of um, high yield, you know, developer debt was like, you know, 35, 45%. I, I don't know on some of these instruments. So I think it's going to take, it's going to take a long time and something, you know, pretty spectacular for foreigners to return to this market. So the issue really, I think, is really whether, you know, what happens to the debt in the domestic market? I mean, the foreign currency debt is pretty much, as I said before, I think, you know, we've already had close to a score of defaults already, and there's probably going to be more. So that's a kind of a write-off, I think. I think most probably investors will have pretty much, you know, kissed goodbye to that. But it's quite important what happens, of course, in the domestic market, and really how policy kind of evolves, really, and how they how they're going to deal with it. I mean, a lot of these numbers that we're kind of looking at is a sort of snapshot in terms of, you know, how many properties are affected by not being completed, how much mortgage debt is involved, you know, which banks are involved and so on. These things are, they look kind of manageable if you look at them, like taking a picture of them. But actually, the issue really is contagion, right? It's mm. it's really that the contagion is something that, you know, if it actually happened, it becomes very, very difficult to control. And mm. I think that the deciding factor, almost not the, maybe an important deciding factor, really will be how the authorities deal with 
the boycotters, you know, the mortgage boycotters. So as I said before, you know, if it's too generous treatment, you know, everybody will want to join in. If it's not generous enough, then the pre-sale housing sale model is shot and uh, could be very destabilizing. There isn't really a kind of, I mean, you know, Chinese government likes to talk about win-win situations. This is really lose-lose. There's, <laughs> there's, no, there's no real winner in this at all. I mean, it's, and it's just, it's one of those things that happens at the end of a property boom. I mean, property is a, a vicious asset. I mean, it's beautiful when everything's going well, but it's pretty vicious when, when things grind to a halt because then lots of things that are previously uncorrelated all fall together. Mm. And that's kind of what we're beginning to see here, I think. And George, I just want to check with you. I mean, you've suggested this already, but you do think that this one is worse than anything the market has seen before because warnings have sounded about China's housing boom for you know a decade now. All the way back to 2011, there were estimates of millions of empty properties, talk of ghost towns, this housing bubble. But do you think that this time is the real deal? Well, it's true. There have been lots of you know, sort of full storms, shall we say, before about, you know, obviously Ghost Town Ordos, you know, and other places. And a lot of the kind of problems were concentrated in sort of tier three and tier four, so lower administratively important cities, whereas there's never really been kind of, as far as I can remember specifically, any kind of major crisis in any of the kind of big cities or tier two cities. But I think this is different because this is not really about whether there's spare capacity or whether we're, you know, people have a sort of a difference of measurement about emptiness because a lot, a lot of empty apartments are or were pre-sold apartments. There's just nobody was actually mm-hmm. living in them, even though somebody was owning them. But I think this is potentially problematic because it's about mortgages, you know. So I've seen the PBC number, of, I think Lulu mentioned now about 38 or 39 trillion yuan in kind of mortgage debt, although I've also seen total household debt at around 60 to 70 trillion. So there may be lots of things that are kind of built into that, which may be, I don't know, possibly second mortgages or other forms of personal liability. But when you're talking about the biggest charge on most people's, and particularly here, the middle class's balance sheet, that's a really important kind of threshold to cross because actually people's behavior can change quite dramatically when they feel, you know, that their housing security is being compromised or prejudiced. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that leads really nicely on to my final question to you, Lulu, because 70% of household wealth in China is in real estate. People just put their money in that instead of saving it elsewhere or putting it in stocks. So what are the implications, not just economic, but for for your ordinary Chinese citizen who's pre-bought a property that hasn't been developed or has their money in lots of housing that's going to now crash. You know, what is the implication for ordinary people? And in in turn, what is the political implication for a country like China, a government like China's? Yeah, just based on the interviews that my colleagues have done these few days, they're talking to these homeowners and mortgage boycotters. And what they're really saying is it's kind of shattered. They have this idea of the world what it was like, and life was always going upwards, and tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. And that's kind of the mentality that people born in the late 70s, especially 80s, 90s generation, they've never seen it bad, right? They've never experienced a full economic cycle. Mm. And this is probably the first time this generation of people who are just coming into their 30s, they're buying property, 
and they're experiencing this. So it really changes their worldview of what life is going to be like for, for them in the future. And also it really casts doubt on whether, you know, the economy and the future of the country is going to be as they envisioned when they were growing up. Especially coming just in the aftermath of the Shanghai lockdown, which I think was a wake-up call for a lot of middle-class Chinese people. Yeah, it was also a, an eye-opener, especially for a lot of the affluent urban people who, especially in Shanghai, because if you had said this at the beginning of the year, a lot of people would just flatly tell you it would be impossible that they would lock down Shanghai like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, George Magnus and Lulu Chen, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. And if you enjoy this podcast, we have a new Chinese Whispers newsletter coming soon. So if you want to sign up to that, which will just be an email version of everything you love about Chinese Whispers, the podcast, then you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers to sign up and it will be coming soon.